You're listening to the Mormon Expression Podcast. Find us on the web at mormonexpression.com. Mormon Expression is made possible through your generous support. Consider a subscription or a donation today. And thanks. It's time for the annual listener essay contest. Essays must be recorded in any audio format and be less than 10 minutes dealing with any topic in Mormonism. And the winner will receive a $100 prize. Essays may be submitted by sending a message to mail at mormonexpression.com. We look forward to hearing your entries and good luck. And finally, the Mormon Expression annual live event will be August 6, 2011 in Salt Lake City. It's going to be a fabulous evening filled with music and the spoken word. Get your tickets now by going to mormonexpression.com slash tickets on our website. We look forward to seeing everybody there. Welcome to another edition of Mormon Expression. I'm your host, Tom Perry, tonight, and I would like to welcome, joining me tonight, uh, my friend Stephanie, who is kind of the, the brains behind this interview, and, and she's also the founder of the blog, The Peace Rider, that can be found at thepeacerider.blogspot.com. Stephanie, thanks for helping and joining me tonight. Well, thanks for having me. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks. Uh, our guest tonight is Ingrid Ricks. Ingrid is a writer, a speaker, and an author of a memoir called Hippie Boy, which tells of her story of growing up in a strict Mormon home in an, with an abusive stepfather. You can find more about Ingrid on her website at IngridRicks.com. Ingrid, welcome to Mormon Expression. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me, and thank you, Steph. Oh, my pleasure. Nice to meet you, Ingrid. You too. So, Ingrid, why don't we just start off, uh, give us a little brief introduction and uh, some background. So you grew up Mormon. Was it in Utah by chance? I did. I spent most of my childhood growing up in Logan, Utah. Uh, for those of you who don't know where Logan is, it's on the Idaho border, very small college town. Yeah, um, Utah State University, right? Yeah, go ads. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I grew up there when I graduated from high school. I went to the University of Utah got a degree in journalism, uh, spent a couple of years working for a couple of Utah newspapers, and then headed to Seattle. And for the most part, I've been here ever since. All right. And you're not Mormon now, right? I'm not. Or are you just inactive? <laughs> so I would say that I'm definitely not Mormon, but I do think that my name is still on the Mormon books. So uh -huh. you're not resigned? I haven't. I, I've not actively taken the steps, although I've People have asked me or I've had knocks on the door from people wanting to teach to me, and I've asked to have my name taken off. But it honestly, it sounds like so much work that I just have never gone to the effort. It, it doesn't matter to me whether my name is on the books. It's not a religion I, I endorse or believe in. So. Okay. All right. So why don't you uh, kind of give us a little background about your family life, uh, siblings, parents, and stuff like that? Sounds good. So so to preface this, my family is not the typical Mormon family. My mother grew up in Austria and um, converted to the Mormon religion when she was 16. My dad grew up in Cache Valley, close to Logan, and grew up Mormon and went on a Mormon mission to Austria, really because he was trying to buy some time to figure out what he wanted to do with his life. The two of them met there. He brought her over to the U U.S. after his mission, and they got married, and that's really where kind of even the problem started in my family because my mother was very much a very strong, devout Mormon, and my dad wasn't, and, and there were a lot of clashes. And and they went on to have five kids. I'm second to the oldest, and um, held a marriage together for a lot of years that probably shouldn't have stayed together, and then eventually they, they parted ways. How old were you when they parted ways? I was 12. 12? Uh, I was 12 when they got divorced, although my dad spent most of his time on the road while I was growing up, so he wasn't really around. And your dad was uh, pretty faithful too, right? Mormon, I mean? Uh, <laughs> neither. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
No, um, he was actually excommunicated from the church when I was in the third grade. So it was very much, he was very much a free willing sort of personality, does not like rules, does not like to be confined to anything. And so there were huge clashes between him and my mother, with my mother being a very devout Mormon. So uh, he wasn't around most of the time. He eventually was excommunicated from the church and then eventually they could, they parted ways. Wow. So they had the whole court thing on him and everything, huh? Yeah. He went, he went before a trial of 12, I think. Yeah. I, I was on the high council for a time. So yeah, I've, I've been on the other side of that. <laughs> so, so they still do excommunications? Sure. Yeah, they still do church discipline. I mean, the bishop can do church discipline in his own office, but yeah, they still have the uh, the high council, the the twelve that to take you in in that big conference room and talk about the bad naughty things that you've done or said and do it. No, I thought it was impossible to get excommunicated. Now I really did. So let's let's talk a little bit about your life growing up in in Mormonism. Did you ever feel like you believed in it, and and maybe you can kind of talk a little bit about the influences of the priesthood and how that kind of all intertwined with the kind of abusive relationship you had with your stepdad. Uh, okay, so starting from as young as I can remember, we had morning church sessions every single day. And my mom was really, really devout. So every day at 6.30, we got up and, and had a mini church session at home that lasted 45 minutes to an hour. And I grew up that in that, and I, I didn't know there was another way until I turned eight years old. So, it, so up until eight, um, I, I was fine with religion. I mean, I felt a little suffocated and, my dad was gone all the time and I wanted to go with them and escape the sort of suffocating religion and nonstop religion. But I didn't know any other way. And in Logan, Utah at that time, I, I didn't ever even meet another non-Mormon. But when I was in third grade, my mom moved our family out to Mississippi in an effort to try to salvage her marriage with my dad. And when I got out there, um, suddenly we were the only Mormons. And not only were we the only Mormons, but we were in a school with mostly black kids. And I don't know if you remember at that time. I, I think it was 1975, called 1975. And at that time, um, blacks couldn't hold the priesthood. And I had always been taught that in the spirit world, there had been a, a big fight um, between, I guess, Jesus supporters and Satan supporters. And black people had sided with Satan. And so... The worst ones were kicked out with Satan, without a spirit, and those who remained um, but were on the sidelines were cursed with black skin. So that's what I believed going into that scenario. And I remember being completely shocked to be in a classroom with all these black kids. So that was my first exposure to not being um, kind of in, in constant the Mormon religion and recognizing that there was something else out there. Um, we we moved back quickly after that. I mean, the the move and the trial run didn't last for very long, but that was the experience. So, so growing up until then, I didn't really question it. Shortly afterward, my dad was uh, excommunicated from the religion and I started questioning a little bit more again, all along. I really um, had a problem feeling like I was being suffocated by the religion, but it was when I got into the sixth grade and my parents got divorced that I really started understanding just what the Mormon doctrine that really gives men ultimate power meant in terms of um, how it could play out in a bad way. Um, and and that's, that's at the point a few months after my mom divorced my dad when she met my stepdad. So your, your stepdad, did you have a good relationship? His name was Earl, is that correct? That's the name I'm, I've given him in the book, yes. In the book? So I guess we can go with that for privacy reasons. Yes. Um, so did you have a good relationship when you first met him? I, I imagine that the divorce was probably hard on you, like, like any normal divorce would be on kids. Uh, how was that whole transition with going through the divorce and then meeting Earl? So for sure, for sure, I was a daddy's girl and had no intention 
of having my mom marry someone else. It, it didn't occur to me when she said she wanted to get a divorce that that meant really that she wanted to get remarried. And so for sure I wasn't crazy about it. But the minute this guy showed up at the door, I knew he was very bad news. I mean, it was just everything about his look, his smell, and his really ice-cold eyes. So I have to say set up. But, but he also... You know, I'm not sure what attracted my mom. He had been divorced three times. He he was homeless at the time. He had been married right before her to a Lutheran and had had drank alcohol, which was a huge sin in, in our book. So I none of us understood. None of us liked him. And within a month, my mom just made the decision that she was going to marry him. And 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 we all protested it very much, but she went ahead with it. So so no, there was never any even like so you never saw him as as maybe even someone that you could get to know there was never anything there but contempt pretty much on your part we begged my mom not to go through with it begged her begged her even my my dad's mother who my mom was still uh, you know still had a relationship she begged her not to go through with it and I've talked with my mom about it since she's no longer married to him and and she says that I I mean she was alone and she had five young kids to take care of and I think because her marriage had been so rocky with my dad for so many years she just really wanted a partnership and uh, you know she she rushed into the marriage and she found out on her honeymoon that it was a very bad deal and she felt like she couldn't get out of it because of their temple marriage so they went They went through the temple. This marriage was through the temple. It was. I mean, my mom wouldn't have, she was devastated when her temple marriage automatically was annulled to my dad because of his excommunication. And for her, if she didn't have a temple marriage, it meant nothing because everything about her life is about being together um, in the celestial kingdom for time and eternity. So okay. she knew him for a month. I guess she knew him a month before they were engaged another month and a half before they got married um, in the temple. She went on their honeymoon, discovered on their honeymoon that she made a huge mistake and felt stuck. Can you share what, what it was that, that brought that uh, realization to her on the honeymoon? Sure. He, she, my mother, I think like a lot of Mormon mothers really, um, wanted to be a stay-at-home mom, wanted to be a homemaker, and wanted to bring as many children into the world as she possibly could. And so she was desperate to have another child, which was another reason for rushing into the marriage. She, I think, was 40. She was 39 or 40, really wanted to have one more child. And he said that he completely embraced that and wanted that too. And when they were on their honeymoon, he disclosed that he had actually had a um, vasectomy. And oh, wow. Yeah, so she felt very betrayed. So do you do you feel then now looking back that he was a real manipulator even to priesthood authorities and, and others, just to anyone? Or, or do you think that was just your mom that he duped and manipulated? I think that he, he came into the relationship and saw an opportunity. I think he saw my mom as someone who was intensely devout in terms of her religious relief beliefs and I think he felt like he could um, abuse the power that he had in the in the Mormon church to to manipulate and oppress her and and her family and that's what he did I don't I don't know he'd also been to Vietnam and I and I think that messed him up a little bit so I think there were some some mental issues too but there was very it was all about um, abuse of power and absolute authority. And it, and it started absolutely. I mean, for me, it, it started happening before uh, they ever got married. And, and that's what hippie boy goes into, but absolutely the minute they returned from their honeymoon, we were called into a room and said, okay, um, the rules are changing this now is your father. You will call him father and no one will speak unless spoken to by him. And he's the head of the household. And, and those were the rules. I mean, he, he was waited on hand and foot. No one could speak unless they were spoken to by him. Um, it, it was 
it was so oppressive and, and so awful. I mean, he would quote from the, the scriptures about a woman obeying their husbands and, and the authority and rule. And he just, he just really used it to, um, manipulate my mom and do a lot of damage. And so was your mom at this point, was she going along with the orders for him, for you all to call him father? And I remember reading something about, um, mandatory, uh, interviews with, with him. Um, that when you, when you ran, um, well, well, I can say from the start. So at first my mom was desperate to have, a good Mormon husband. My dad had never been that. He had never been around. And she really craved having a husband who kind of would lead the household. She wanted that. She wanted that authority to turn to, honestly. And, and she wanted to, I, I think I think she just was tired of doing it all. She wanted someone she could turn it over to. And um, the opening chapter of my book, Hippie Boy, starts with him. Um, so they've known each other for a month and a half, and it's two weeks before their marriage. And my dad popped over for a surprise visit and invited me to go with him to New Mexico for the weekend. And my mom had full custody of us, but there had never been an issue ever with me going with my dad. So we were in the living room. My mom and Earl were in the kitchen kind of holding court in there and I ran into the kitchen down our hallway to ask my mom if I could go with my dad to New Mexico and she looked at me and then she turned and gazed at Earl and said um we'll have to ask Earl and this was before they were even ever married I mean it was a month and a half into it and he looked at me and and broke into a big smile and said we're gonna have to pray about it and took my mom by the hand and walked her into the bedroom. And I knew it was all a farce. I mean, it was ridiculous. But my mom bought it hook, line, and sinker. And they went into that bedroom. And they were in there for a while. And then they came back out. And I I went back into the kitchen and asked. And, and Earl said, well, what about church? Um, you're going to have to go to church, knowing that my dad had been excommunicated from the church and knowing uh, that that wasn't on the schedule. And right. So so I went back in, and I, I told my dad, and he was so furious that he could hardly speak, but he just said, tell them tell them whatever they, the hell they want to hear and just tell them. So I went back in, and I said, my dad said we will go to at least one church meeting, and he said, we're going to have to pray about it some more. Took my mom by the hand, led her back into the bedroom to pray. And and then when they came back out um, and I went back into the kitchen, he looked at me with the creepiest smile and said, um, I'm sorry, Ingrid, the Lord doesn't want you to go with your dad at this time. And that pretty much established our relationship. So at that time, yeah, my mom was buying it and she was blindly following it but once she got back from her honeymoon like any joy that she had in her face was gone I mean it was gone but but she did for for a while I think she just felt really powerless to it all and she felt like she had brought this on she she felt that given that she was the one that had um, requested the temple marriage and had been given that temple marriage and after going through the divorce with my dad when you know you're not supposed to get a divorce ever she felt like she couldn't just go back to the Mormon bishop and ask for another divorce. So she just thought she'd made her bed and we were all going to have to live with it. Oh, wow. Okay. So Ingrid, it sounds like this, this, your stepfather, this Earl guy was using a lot of tactics to manipulate whatever he wanted or to manipulate the situation. Um, looking back on it now, and especially with you writing your memoir, how much responsibility do you put on the church and the authority that the you know the priesthood has, and kind of the role that the church puts on on males and the priesthood as being kind of a an authority figure in the home. When you look at it now, do you do you put a lot of the blame on the church in that situation, or or most of it on Earl, or how how do you divide that out? I, I mean, I think it's in my case it was a perfect storm, but I think it starts with a religious doctrine that gives men so much power and so complete power over their um, spouses and over their family. And I think it sets up abuse. 
I, I mean, I don't know how, how you can get away from it not setting up abuse. And there were people, the Mormon bishop included, who knew what was taking place in our household, and it was just overlooked. Uh, it, it, I mean, they knew what was going on, and yeah. So, so I, I, I place a lot of responsibility. I think, I think any religion. I'm not just Mormon. I, I know there are other religions out there, but any religion who sets up that kind of ultimate power. Um, you know, and and takes away the power from someone else. It, it's just setting up abuse. Um, so, I I think. I mean, on the other side, I think there's responsibility among the people who follow those beliefs and blindly follow them and say that that's okay. It, it's their responsibility too. So it's a joint responsibility, I guess. You said that uh, there was there were some more instances of abuse. Was this this Earl guy, your stepdad, was he more abusive than just uh, exercising authority and manipulating the situations? Was he like, I mean, only, only explain what you wanted, but like physically or uh, sexually or anything like that? Um, not sexually. He was physically abusive um, to the point. So, so very early on in their relationship within three months, he lost his job. He was a motorcycle mechanic. So he was unemployed the rest of their marriage. And my mom worked as a public health nurse and we were all so scared to be home with him alone that, that we all tried to not be home, not arrive home until we knew my mom was going to arrive home. The, the one time that it happened, I was in, seventh grade and it happened that I did arrive home and I walked in the house and he was waiting in the hallway for me and grabbed me and said, um, now you're going to find out who's in control. And he had his belt and he started whipping me with the belt and, um, I broke away and, and took off and didn't come back until my mom got home. But, but once, once she was there, I, there was never an opportunity to just get her alone to try to talk with her because he, he was very controlling and, and he, he attached himself to her. And anytime I ever tried to talk with my mom, he would just say, look, anything that um, you want to say to her, you can say to me too. There, there just wasn't. And it, there was just never a situation to even try to talk with my mom. And it just didn't matter at that point anyway, because she was so, I think such a victim herself that, that she was unable to protect us. Another time I came home and he uh, had killed the, the rabbits that my sister was raising in the back and he had them, their skins um, dripping off my mom's um, clothesline on her back porch and had the chicken in our, or the rabbit meat in our freezer. And as soon as I came home, he opened the door and said, look what I did. And then he just said, you're going to love it. It tastes just like chicken. And it, those types of things that, um, you know, mess a kid up. So, so was your, would you say that your mother was abused? Was she abused by him as well, physically or emotionally? And I, um, she was abused mostly emotionally. The the one time that, that I heard her being physically abused is really at the end of hippie boy. And I was 16 at that point And, really had had finally claimed my own power and finally no longer felt scared of him and I was we we were poor and and we had one bathroom in the house and it had a large clawfoot tub and and the adjoining room was my my mom's bedroom and I was in soaking in the tub one night and I heard them fighting and as usual I heard them arguing over me but this time I heard my mom stand up for me and then I heard him slap her really hard and I lost it and I jumped out of the tub and threw on a robe and I said everybody you know in the church is going to know what you're doing to our family so I ran out I grabbed a phone and started trying to dial and he came running out and ripped the phone out of the wall and we ended up getting into a, a huge huge fist fight but I and wow. I can, I can say that it and my mom locked herself in the bathroom to pray well while he and I were duking it out in, in the kitchen. And 
And I, I have to say, though, at that point, uh, you know, at that point, I felt strong enough that and I was angry enough that I was holding my own. So I'm not even sure if I felt his hits because I was hitting just as hard. <laughs> so. Wow. Now, at this point, you said that you're the second to the oldest. Were any of the other children, any of your other siblings um, singled out? By him, the way in the way that you were, were any of them di- directly af- affected as as much as you were? Um, in in different ways. So so my oldest sister was sixteen when when he came into the relationship, and her way of dealing with it was not to be there at all. But there's one case again in in Hippie Boy where he started every night. He would start in on some something every single night, and on this particular case. Um, he started in about her dog. She had a dog, Abby, and he started like getting in her face and saying he was going to kill the dog, get rid of the dog. And so she said, if the dog goes, I go too. And he said, fine. And he threw her hard down into a chair and she came back up and kicked him in the face, actually. I mean, but this was how the house was. This is how bad it was. And went running out of the house and my mom chased after and said, don't forget that in two hours we've all, all got to have a meeting at the bishop's office, and and that was that. There was no. It, it was it was always like that. And we went to the bishop's office two hours later, and it was we were all crammed into his office. And this bishop, who really disliked my dad and had really sanctioned my mom's um, marriage with this guy, called us all in and started yelling at us and asking how we could not love and respect this guy that my mom had brought into our house. And after, after he droned on for about 10 minutes, we were all told my siblings and I to go out into the hallway and, and he was going to have a private talk with my mom and Earl. So afterward they came out and, and Earl says the Bishop wants to talk with you and your sister. So the two of us went in and, and he had to sit down. And I remember, I mean, he was a really big guy with a really, big head and I remember him just looming in and said um what's wrong with you girls I mean what is wrong with you girls don't don't you know that that this is a guy you're supposed to love and respect and then he said you don't even have a right to love your dad you have no right to love your dad and and she just jumped up and and said I let me make sure I heard you right you said I don't have a, a right to love my dad and took off and I took off too so she had those experiences but quickly got out of the house in fact when on her graduation night um she had wrecked her car the week before and she was planning to get out of the house and move to Jackson, Wyoming the next day. And um, Earl forbid my mom to help her in any way to give her a ride, to uh, give her gas money, to do anything to get out of the house. So she spent the night uh, packing up regardless. And she had a friend pull up in a truck at eight o'clock the next morning to pick her up. And my mom snuck out and gave her gas money. Wow. it was that kind of environment that it was just, it it was so oppressive um, because my mom didn't dare go against his wishes. My younger sister ended up um, getting severe, severe asthma and going into the hospital and almost dying. And she was hospitalized for two weeks, almost died. And the doctors pulled my mom aside and said, look, this is emotional you've got to get some help for your family. And so the minute she was out of the hospital, we went, we were marched into a Mormon church counseling center, put in a, a circle in a room. And it was the very same thing. It was repeated at the Bishop's office. The counselor looked at us all and said, what's wrong with you kids? You're supposed to love this guy. And that was it. We never went back. And my sister for the rest of her years um, was put in private counseling once a week. So, so she was deemed off. I mean, I mean, the doctors basically said, "Look, if you don't get her help, she her health problems are going to be so severe." So she was pretty much off limits in terms of being picked on. Um, and then I had two younger brothers, and uh, I caught him hitting my youngest brother a couple of times. And yeah, I mean, it was it was bad. So, so back back to Tom's question then. How much culpability do you place on the local priesthood leaders for allowing this to continue? Were, were they this? Were they aware of everything that you that you described? 
they were so so that bishop for sure was aware of problems and did nothing. I mean, I was not secretive about what was going on and, and about my disdain for him. And in fact, when I it got to be so bad, so so hippie boy in the story of hippie boys that really to escape um, Earl every summer um, from the age of 13 on the day school got out, I flew out to wherever my dad was living in the country. He, and he wasn't living in the country. He was living as a, a vagabond, really. And mm-hmm. I joined him every summer and we hustled tools out of the back of his truck and we lived in rest areas and in motel sixes. And we, you know, my friends thought it sounded like a lot of work because from six in the morning until seven or eight at night. We were driving around the secondary roads of the Midwest looking for prospects to sell tools to. And it was the most freeing experience of my life because I didn't have that horrid, oppressive existence every second of my day. Our, our only rules were no eating breakfast till we'd sold a hundred bucks worth of tools and no quitting until we'd sold 500 bucks worth of tools. And that was it. Those were our only rules. So so I escaped during the summer, and I can't even tell you what my siblings went through because it was really – everyone was out for themselves. Um, but when I returned, I believe it was my ninth grade year, the, the minute I walked in the house, it was so oppressive, and I, and I just thought I wouldn't be able to stand it another second. So my mom, everybody was trying to find a place for me to go live. And so at that time – my mom said, well, let's go talk to the, the Mormon bishop, who's a new Mormon bishop. And again, like we laid it all out, and my, my mom did too. I mean, I'm sobbing in tears. We both were just laid out what was going on. And, you know, ultimately he said, well, you should probably go live with your grandma or go live somewhere else. But there was no action taken to try to address the situation. And And I have to say that that's the one thing probably – the biggest anger that I had at that time, um, my dad was excommunicated from the church and he was excommunicated for committing adultery. Um, he did not abuse my mom. He didn't abuse his children. And this guy was the worst human being. Really, you could almost come across, but because he did not cheat on my mom, and nobody did anything. So, yeah, I, I think the church has a lot of responsibility. And and I can't believe that our family is the only family that's gone through something like this. No, I, I would say that you're probably right there, that that's, that's very true, that there are more cases than probably anyone would like to think. Right. Um, and I, I have a question to ask you, and, and I want to be delicate with this, because without saying too much, I can... You know, I told you when, when I contacted you before that I can relate to a lot of the things that you're talking about, um, where the church is sort of used as a as a as a stick to beat you with in some ways, um, growing up and, and as an excuse for an oppressive environment. Um and there there's something about that being used that you can't argue with. There's no way to argue with that. There's no way to um argue with God. And when that's the way that God has been represented to you, um, you, you kind of lose any any ground that you have to stand on. And in, in that spirit, I, I have to ask, how, how much culpability do you place on your mom? And I'll, I'll uh, pair that with another question. What do you think was broken or is broken in the LDS religion, customs, whatever, doctrine that would enable a woman like your mom who seems reasonably intelligent to fall under the power of someone like Earl? So, no, that's a very good question. And I can say, so the first part of it is that I used to hold so much anger toward my mom. In fact, it's only been in the last few years that we've really been able to um, cross that bridge and get over it. And, and it wasn't until finally she was really able to really, truly be sorry and, and tell me she was sorry for all those years um, that I was able to let it go. But I, I think in the case of my mom, um, and this is probably a longer answer than you want, but my, my mom was very much, I would say, an abused um, woman. And 
for a lot of years. She grew up in in a, a very abusive environment in Austria. She, she her her real mom was taken from her when she was a baby and was put in a concentration camp. And she grew up um, with her biological dad, who had had an affair with her mother to have her, and and her stepmother, who really resented her as a result. So she grew up in a very a very abusive, emotionally and physical abusive environment and found the Mormon church, I think, converted to it when she was 16 as a way um, to be saved. I mean, she just needed to put her herself into higher hands. I mean, she just couldn't handle life, and her life was so unhappy that that she found that to be the thing that, that saved her. So, so that's the first thing. I mean, she needed that. And then, and then secondly, her, in her relationship with my dad, my dad didn't treat her well. I mean, he, he probably um, cheated on her. And I think by the time Earl came into the picture, she was so broken down that she, uh, she felt like she had no power. Having said that, um, I'm a mother of two young daughters and there is, nothing in my being that would allow me to stand by and let anyone hurt my children. So, so from that aspect, I I mean, she does have responsibility. I've, I've forgiven her for it. Um, I think, I think the problem again goes back to a religion's doctrine that allows this kind of behavior and not only allows it, but the entire religion set up that way. I mean, the entire, idea that a woman no matter no matter how saintly can't go to heaven unless she's got that man calling her name through the veil is horrible and and i'm telling you that my mom without the idea that she could go to the celestial kingdom she's nothing i mean she's so intensely devout so so the way it's set up i mean that's what's broken i mean any sort of rules that takes someone who's so who's so intensely religious that they'll buy anything hook, hook, line, and sinker and then tell them that um, their very, um, I guess, eternal salvation is dependent on the man in their lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all broken. So, you know, but but then there's something that says, well, as a woman, why would you ever um, buy into this religion? And, and so I think... I'll ask you that question, Stephanie. Why Why did you buy into the religion? Because for me, I was a lot like your mother and came from a, a very abusive family. And when I was 15 years old, um, having been through a series of stepfathers, um, and the one that I had at the time was a good, decent man, but there had been plenty that weren't. Um, Seeing a friend in a high school class with a CTR ring brought everything back, and it was security, it was safety, it was identity. It was something that would save me from what I was running from. So I can I can relate to your mom. And I was married to the most wonderful man in the world, who still is, um, at a very young age. And it kept me in, um, being a mom, being a stay-at-home mom, married at 17, a mother at 19. I, I, I get that. I do get that. You just, you just sort of grow up in it. Right. And it sounds like you're very fortunate or it sounds like if you're no longer in the church, that also your husband is no longer in the church, right? We both resigned three and a half years ago together. That's so fortunate. I wonder how many couples where that actually happens. I'll bet it's very rare. I, I I agree. I count my blessings every day. Well, as uh, now that I'm completely uncomfortable <laughs> as being the only guy here, <laughs> as the priesthood holder, I must interject. No, um, you you know what I'm saying. I I, right. I and I think Ingrid would agree as well. But there, this isn't a bash on on LDS men. No, and I and I have to say I have lots of good friends. I mean women and men who are in the Mormon religion. So, so it's true. I, I mean, I, yeah. So maybe you should edit out, edit out all my comments huh, about. Oh. <laughs> no, no, no. I think, I think there's a definite place for that perspective. And, and I wanted to, I want to kind of follow up with that a little bit. I want to 
see if you can explain to me uh, what was going on in the heart and mind of young Ingrid when all this was going on. I mean, you obviously sound like you have a lot of resentment towards the church and the and the fact that it can empower men in the household and with whatever role that they are entitled, quote, entitled to have. But when you were younger, um, what was your spirituality like? Did, did you feel any sort of connection to God, um, whether it's within Mormonism or whether it's not? I mean, did you feel like you were a spiritual person? Did you feel like, did I mean, did you pray? Did did you take some enjoyment out of uh, all the many Mormon meetings you went to, stuff like that, on a personal level? So I would say two things. I mean, one, yes, I do feel like as a result of my upbring- upbringing, um, I, I have a, I'm spiritual and, and had a relationship with God, and I, and I think that I, I still find myself to be a spiritual person. I just don't find my self to be a religious person, if that makes sense. Um, and yeah, there have been times in my life when, when I've prayed for sure. And, and times that I, I still pray. Um, so from, from that aspect, I mean, it's been good. I, I can't say that I ever embraced any of the meetings. I, I liked the road shows every once in a while. I, I got, to play, <laughs> I got to play Tinkerbell once and that was really cool. All right. um, but, but my experience, and again, I don't think it's the typical Mormon experience at all, but because I was in such a really um, intensely religious Mormon household, my entire life revolved around church. I, I mean, by the time I was eight, I had read the Book of Mormon three times. I mean, it was just constant. It was an hour every single morning, including Sundays, and then Sunday there was a three-hour block of church and then on Sundays we couldn't even change out of our church clothes and we didn't have really a stereo per se it was only to play the tabernacle choir I mean it was just very uh, so suffocating for me that I don't have a lot of good memories but I I don't I think my mom tried really hard and I know now she looks back and wishes she had done things differently so so maybe if I'd grown up in an environment where it wasn't so extreme maybe I wouldn't have a bad taste in my mouth but again I do know wonderful people in the religion so So you probably wouldn't say because it sounds like you're saying that you never really gained a testimony right you never got that that inner conversion whether it was whether it was whether it was with Mormonism or whether it was just with God or no, it was all really fear-based. I mean, I remember when I, before I turned eight, every time I would sin, I would think, oh, it's okay, I I haven't been baptized yet, I'll be forgiven. And I remember <laughs> being baptized, I mean, it was actually really serious for me. I remember being baptized and then thinking, okay, this is it, I can't sin anymore. And I remember 20 minutes into the car ride after being baptized, I yelled at my brother and almost had a panic attack because I thought I've already sinned and it's only been 20 minutes. Um, how can I possibly get through life and be saved? I, I just wrote an essay about, um, well, I titled it, um, you know, if, if the world's doomed, I'm grateful for my Mormon mother, but it was all about um, our two year food supply. And, and we really struggled. I mean, we were on government WIC vouchers and church welfare oftentimes, but, but we were very adamant about um, the two-year food supply. And I remember, but it was all fear-based. And I remember at eight laying in bed at night um, calculating how much time I had until I would die in the year 2000 and really being concerned. I mean, feeling like I was getting ripped off, that I wasn't going to have nearly enough time to enjoy life and also that I wouldn't have near enough time to live life and, and then still repent and be saved. So, so for me, I didn't take joy because it was all, just all fear-based. And and again, that might just have been the way I grew up and not necessarily indicative of, of the religion. That's actually pretty familiar. I, I, I can relate to that as well. And, and so I would ask, you know, as you got a little older, when did that start to fade? Because, um, you know, obviously by the time you were in seventh grade and your parents divorced and Earl comes into the picture, were you still in that place where you feared 
it sounds like you did a good job of standing up to the bishop. Um, yeah, no, by that point, I mean, once he came into the house and the minute the instance occurred where he forbid me to go to New Mexico with my dad because God had told him no, um, a line was drawn. And from then, from then on, I don't think I even had thoughts about religion. It, my life was about survival. And it, so it really, it, it was all about kind of surviving the situation that was home at home and escaping it any way I could by getting out with my dad. And, and I did it not just during the summers. I mean, oftentimes during Christmas breaks, I would fly out to wherever he was too. I just, my different siblings had different ways to approach it. And mine was get out of there as much as I could. So, so I can't say, but, but having now as an adult, I, I mean, once I, once we were able, and, and I should say this and, and here's another reason, again, maybe it just comes to my own experience, but when I had that final fistfight with Earl while my mom was locked in the bathroom praying, she finally came out and told him to leave, and, and he did leave, and I thought it was finally over. It had been four and a half years, and I thought, finally, it's done. And two days later, I came home from school, and he was standing in the kitchen with my mom, and he was back, and at that point I just said well then I'm going and I you know I don't know where I'm going to go but I I can no longer stay here at all and I went to stay with a friend and really had no idea what my game plan was going to be in terms of where I was going to go and my older sister was in town visiting uh, that weekend and had seen my mom saw how miserable she was and took her on a car ride and said why don't you leave him why don't you get divorced and she just said I can't I can't I can't if, without the bishop I can't so so my sister had had the idea to go to the Mormon bishop the next day and plead our case and this bishop was he knew what was going on like I said he was the one who had three years earlier suggested I go with my grandmother but he said to her he said look I would never ever have approved that temple marriage had I been the bishop but I can't just call your mom in and tell her um, that she, to get a divorce. I mean, she has to come to me. So my sister orchestrated this whole thing, said that the bishop wanted to see my mom. She went in there. They had a talk. The bishop said she could get divorced. And as soon as she walked out of that meeting, still in the church house, she told Earl to, to pack his bag and, and get out. And I don't know the idea that, and I think it's probably not just the Mormon religion. I think it's any sort of organized religion, but the idea that, that, so much abuse and so much misery can take place. And unless a man with some title in the religion says it's okay um, not to have to go through this anymore, you know, at least in my mom's case, she felt very powerless, did not feel like she could do anything about it. So wow. it's a little off track, but. Would you say that uh, your book, Hippie Boy, pretty much describes all of your experiences that you've described here and then some? I mean, how. I mean, kind of give us a background of Hippie Boy. Is it basically just all your experiences? Um, so so the premise of Hippie Boy, it's about a, a teenage girl who escapes her abusive Mormon stepfather by joining her dad on the road as a tool-selling vagabond uh, until his arrest forces her to take charge of her life. And it's really the story. It's a coming-of-age story of someone that could be any child, and I don't think it has to be within a Mormon religion, but, it, but it's just... Uh, a girl who really faced a lot of adversity and for the longest time was looking to someone else to save her. That same, that same idea, right? That someone else has to save you. And, mm -hmm. and then through, uh, when my, my dad uh, liked to call himself a creative financer and, and he was arrested while I was on the road with him when, when um, I was 16. And at that point I was either going to get figure out a way to get him released on a fugitive bond he was we were in illinois and he was supposed to be extradited to texas or i was going to go into foster care until we could figure out a way to get to utah and and more importantly i didn't want to get cheated out of my summer with my dad i mean it was only july 5th and so that day i it was a very long day but at the end of it i talked that judge into letting my dad out on fugitive bond and it gave me um uh, it was so empowering. I realized that I didn't, that I had the power within myself, that I didn't need to um, try to have someone else save me, that I had it within myself. So that really is what the story is about. It's, 
it's like going through this really rocky time, running from this abusive situation by going out and living this complete extreme different lifestyle out on the road as a tool hustler until uh, I'm forced to take charge of my life. And once, once I found that inner power, I was able to go back to Utah, face down Earl um, in that ultimate fist fight and get him out of the house. And, and that really is the story. That sounds great. So, so what if, uh, I imagine that there's going to be listeners out there that have, uh, that are either living in a, in maybe an abusive home with an abusive parent, whether it's female or male, I guess it doesn't have to be gender specific. Um, seeing that you've been able to experience quite a bit, um, just from an abusive standpoint, what kind of advice would you give to somebody that's in that kind of situation, whether they're a child or a teenager? Um, what, yeah, what would you say to that? I would say get help, and I would say shout it loud and clear. And and if you go to one person in authority and they don't listen, go to someone else. I, I can say during those kind of critical years when I was in junior high, there was an art teacher who knew something was wrong and I didn't, I didn't disclose to him everything that was going on. But, but one day he came to me and asked me if I would like to hang out after, after school with his class. He said, you know, he's always there. And he honestly became my escape. And then my younger sister's escape because we were able to stay in his class until the activity bus came and then get home around the same time my mom got home. So we didn't have to be in a situation where we were alone with, with Earl. And, and I wish that I had had the guts. I mean, when I said earlier that I let people know what was going on, I I guess I should say, I let people know how much I disliked this guy, but I never laid it out for anyone other than that one Bishop, exactly what was going on and just how horrible it is. And I think that if I would have, I think this teacher would have, would have tried to help. And I, and I think there are people, particularly now, this happened, this was in the 80s, the early 80s. And I think now society in general is so much more in tune with abuse that's taken place. And I think that's what I would say. I mean, shout it out loud, stand up for yourself, go find someone to talk to and get help. You don't have to live in that kind of situation. Is that is that part of the reason that you felt the need to write this memoir? Yeah, I mean, two reasons. One, to say abuse is not okay, but also to say um, you've got the power within you. Uh, For so many years, I didn't. I felt so powerless myself, just as my mom felt very powerless. I felt so powerless to the entire situation. And until something clicked inside of me and I recognized that I was a strong person and I could take care of myself and stand up for myself, you know, I mean, that that was a complete turning point. Had my dad not been arrested and, and I have not been forced to um, save myself by saving him, it, you know, who knows? But I, I, I was put in a position where I really had to learn how to, how to um, depend on myself. And it made me a much stronger person. And I want people to know that it's all within. Everybody's got it within themselves. I mean, nobody has to... Um, put up with abuse or put up with a bad life and everybody has got it within themselves. They might not know it, but it's within you. You just have to claim it. So yeah, I would say that's true. Well, and, and, and I, again, I don't mean to um, say too much here, but I, it, it's obvious to me listening to you that you are still in a lot of pain. There still is a lot of pain attached to these memories. Um, how hard was it to write this? How hard was it to sit down every day and go through the editing process, write this, you know, from rough draft to final edits. How hard was it to, to come up with this? You know, um, you know, honestly, it's a story that I've been working on for eight years and one that I've just really felt compelled to tell. And, and you're right. I mean, I, I wish I could say that I had no emotion attached to it anymore. Um, <laughs> But I, but I do. I mean, it's gotten a lot better. And like I said, it, in a way, it's been really healing because for the longest time, my mother and I couldn't couldn't talk at all. And 
And I, it was important for me that she read this manuscript before I ever shopped around. I, I wanted to make sure that, that at the very least, um, she had the opportunity to read it, the opportunity to um, give me her thoughts. And also so that if there was anything that she didn't agree with in terms of what I remembered, that she could correct it because I wanted it to be accurate. And and the first time she read it, she was on a Mormon mission in Burma and or Myanmar and she was really upset, and, and it was still in an earlier stage. And then a couple years later, I sent her a later version, and, and that time she, she finished it, and she called, and she was in tears, and, and, that was a, and she said how sorry she was. And, and that was, that was really, really when we were able to kind of heal our relationship, you know. So, and I know she went through a lot of hurt, too. A lot of people did. I, I mean, and I'm, I'm grateful that we all came to the other side of it but yeah it, it was tough well I'm, I'm i'm certainly glad and it certainly cheers me up that uh it sounds like all this has been kind of a uh, part of the healing process for you your mom um do you have a do you have a still good relationship with your dad right now i do i i mean they're both they both are on their third marriage and, and have settled into their lives and, and everybody's much happier. And yeah, I, I talk, I talk with both of my parents on a regular basis. They're both in Utah. In fact, when I come to Utah next month, they're the ones I'm coming to see. So yeah, no, it's great. And, and I have to say something because Stephanie, when you said something about um, kind of the emotion attached, I, I don't know if I mentioned to you or if you know that I have this degenerative eye disease called retinitis pigmentosa and, and it came out of the blue. It's a, it's a disease that affects um, young people and you first lose your um, night vision, then you lose your peripheral vision until it just kind of closes in, in some cases to nothing. Some people retain a little bit, but it's supposedly hereditary, but there's nothing in my family. And three years ago I went down to see a naturopath in, in California and and the first thing any he really deals with mind body and and he spent the first 10 minutes asking me about um my childhood growing up and I got really emotional very quickly and and he said to me he said you know it's clear there's still a lot of energy charge here and if you think that that doesn't impact your physical health you're crazy and and it really had I I've actually come a long way since then because at that time, I still I harbored so, and I and I still do have a, a big dislike for Earl for sure. Um, oh sure. But I at that time I was still I think giving so much of my energy over to it. And he said to me, he said, you know, you're I'm 44 now, and I think I was 42. And he said, you know, you're carrying this energy over something that happened so many years ago and imagine how this is affecting your health and your eyesight and you know it was powerful for me so I've really been working working really hard to um, try to live now live for now to let go of of past pain and past hurt because it really is true I mean it doesn't it sure doesn't do any good to hold on to it um, other than taking the lessons from it and embracing now and moving forward and I and I feel really fortunate I have an amazing family I have and and I do have a I I feel really fortunate that I got a great relationship with my mom after all these years that we have been able to heal it so um yeah so it's I'm working on it every day and I and I hope uh I, I hope five years from now I won't have any emotion at all when I talk about it other than embracing the story for a great story but Wow, it's amazing that you've come so far. I have to say. Yeah, I, I, I would I would echo those sentiments too. Uh, I think this is a, a really good place to end. Uh, those were some pretty inspiring words, Ingrid Ricks. I appreciate you joining us on the show once again. You can find her information at her website at ingridricks.com. Stephanie, I appreciate you joining us and uh, kind of brainstorming this all together. Any final words from the two of you? And um, no, but thank you so much both for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you too. And and just as a reminder, the discussion continues at mormonexpression.com. We'll have we'll have some the links to Ingrid's website and uh, once again, appreciate you guys coming on. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Thanks. Thank you.
mom's got at least two years worth of food down there. So you probably got a little bit yourself, right, Tom? Oh, come on. And now, now we're going to discuss how faithful I am. Okay. <laughs> I have, I probably have at least a week's worth of cold cereal. Does that count? <laughs> 